and at Coleman, Alabama, 157, I uh, got off there and went north, kind of northwest. And uh, even though I was in a hurry, I saw this sign in a in a yard, talking dog for sale. So I wheeled around and went back, went down the drive to this this house. And um, gentleman out in the front yard, kind of piddling around, I said, "Sir, you have a talking dog for sale?" He said, "I sure do." He said, "Go back in the backyard. He'll talk to you." So I went back there and I said, "You can talk." And the dog said, "I sure can." I said, when did you discover that? And he said, when I was a puppy. And he said, I actually have been employed for the government. I've worked for the CIA. I've traveled all over the world and have eavesdropped at important summit meetings and then would go back and report all that I heard. When it got a little dangerous and fear of being discovered, they farmed me out to the FBI. So I've worked for the FBI, local police department. And then I got too old, wanted to settle down, have a family. So I retired here to Alabama. And I said, that is absolutely amazing. I went back around front and I said, how much do you want for the dog? He said, $10. I said, $10 for a talking dog? He said, he's a liar. You can't believe anything he tells you. (laughs) Well, what I'm going to tell you tonight is the truth. Um, Because it's um, from God's Word. Open with me the book of Jude, would you? I was just stalling while I got this uh, worked out with with the microphone. Jude chapter 1. How many chapters are in the book of Jude? Just one. But it's filled with a lot of, um, a lot of pungent and pregnant meaning. It's a great, great book filled with warnings and admonitions and filled with great praise to our great God. It's, it's an epistle, but when you look at it, it's really more of a postcard because it's so brief, but the brevity doesn't minimize the importance of the book itself. It concludes, I think, It's grace-filled warnings and admonitions. It concludes, I think, with one of the most powerful doxologies in all of Scripture. And periodically, when I fill the pulpit, I actually give this as a benediction. But it is, in reality, a doxology. It's a reminder to us that sound theology should always lead to a fervent worship of the one true and living God. Because doxology literally means... A short praise to God. Doxa means glory and ology, uh, uh, word or that which is spoken. So it is a brief word of spoken praise to God. And it begins in, at the end of Jude. And follow with me in verse 24. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 24, verse 25, that's where we'll be tonight. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. A short word of praise to God, our Father. You know, there's something inherent in sons and daughters that they instinctively want to boast in and brag about their fathers. Um, I overheard standing at the kitchen sink one day, I overheard when our kids were small children playing in the backyard. And, and you know, the, the, the boys are boasting, bragging on their dads. My dad can run faster than your dad. My dad makes more money than your dad. And finally it got around to this. It degenerated to this low level 
Yeah, well, my dad can whip your dad. And I heard my son say, yeah, so can my mother. Um, <laughs> that's not really true either. Um, I'm proud to say. Um, but you know the, the feeling. There, there's, there's something I think God instilled about that. Because Proverbs 17.6 says, The glory of sons is their father's. That glory there means weight, kabod, the weightiness of sons is their fathers, but boys and daughters naturally want to praise or think well of or admire, maybe even worship their fathers. Rick Meyer wrote a book entitled, I Love You, Son, What Every Boy, and in parentheses man, needs to hear. Those three little words, I love you, son, what every boy and what every man needs to hear from his father. It grew out of a counseling practice in which he was exclusively counseling men and the hurts and the wounds that he heard and the emotional deficits that abounded in the, the lives of these men because some of them had absent fathers or some of them had emotionally distant fathers or whatever. But what he discovered in the counseling promise is the power of a father who communicates those three words to his sons, son or daughter, I love you. This letter begins with the pronouncement of God's love for us as his people. It's God beginning to say to us, as He says to us in the gospel of His grace, Son or daughter, I love you. Notice how the text begins in the opening verses. It's the revelation, verse 1 says, uh, pardon me, wrong chapter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, and notice this phrase, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, grace, and peace be multiplied to you. Notice the little words, beloved in God the Father. All of those saving actions, the being called and the being kept and the grace and mercy that's being multiplied flow out of the fact that we are beloved children of a great God. You and I hear God's well done. You and I hear the love of God for His people in the promises and the words of the gospel. And the, the response to all of this is at the end of the book, the response to being God's beloved sons and daughters is that we are motivated to, to boast and admire and worship God our Father. The depth of God's love, the, the measureless value, the volumes of God's love for us are contained within the pages of Scripture. Because this little verse or this little short epistle describes not only the power of God to save us, to call us to Himself, to give us life in Christ. But this short epistle, if you read it, also reminds us that God is able to sustain and keep that good work of grace alive in us until a coming day of consummate glory when we stand before Him and behold Him as He really is. And so our natural response then to our Father, our Heavenly Father, and all the saving work that has gone to rescue us from our sins, is that we too are filled with boasting and bragging in and admiring God our Father. And we do so in the language of the doxology at the end of this book because then we're God's beloved people. We are assured fully of our preservation in His grace. That's what verse 24 teaches. The text here affirms in very bold, clear terms the power of God our Father. The great object of our praise is to Him who is able. Now to Him who is able. 
the, the little verse there, to him who's able, the word able actually, describes a word with which you've heard and you're familiar if you've been in Bible studies. It's the little word dunamai. It refers to the inherent power that God has, the power that is resident within God, an inherent ability to accomplish all that He intends to accomplish. That simply means that if God intends to save you, you can rest firmly and securely in His willingness and His power to secure that work that He's begun in you. And that's how the doxology begins. It begins by praising God for the promise of His preservation in grace. All of Jude's warnings, the warnings about false teachers, the warning of of false teachers slipping in, creating division and misunderstanding and confusion and so on, all of those warnings and all of their promises ultimately find their solution at the opening verse of this doxology. Now to Him who's able. Our God is able. Our Father is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. That's how Paul described it in Ephesians chapter 3. Our Father is able to do more than we can even begin to imagine or think or ask. Our Father is able to completely subdue our bodies that are flawed by sin, that are doomed to death, that are subject to curse and eventual decay. He's able someday at the coming of Christ to resurrect our bodies, to reunite us with our souls so that We spend eternity, both body and soul, reflecting fully the glorious image of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2 says God is able to rescue us from every temptation because He's filled with awesome power. He's able to save us completely through the intercession of Christ in Hebrews 7. Our Father is able to preserve us in the grace that's come to us in the gospel. I... You've heard of the the doctrine of the perseverance of saints, perseverance of the saints. Frankly, I prefer prefer the preservation of the saints because perseverance has the connotation that you, you tie a knot in the rope and you hang on. But the idea of the truth of Scripture concerning this great truth, this glorious truth, is it's not so much that we have a hold of God's hand but that God holds us firmly and securely in His hand. Do you remember when your children were very small, the days when they liked to hold on to you? When they didn't mind being seen holding your hand in public? you remember walking across parking lots or, or uh, out of a restaurant or, or across the street and your child would reach up and grab your hand and maybe they would stumble or they would fall and, and your, your grip quickened instantly and you kind of pulled up a little bit and you kept them from going to the ground. That's the concept. That's the idea of the preservation of saints. It's not so much that that we need to renew our grip on God. It's the very idea that God has gripped us because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. It's the very idea, as verse 1 says, that we are kept by Jesus Christ, that we are called and beloved people and that we are kept by Jesus Christ. And there are numerous texts that support this powerful truth, and it would be a little bit of a digression to go into all of them, because that's not really the main point of what I'm wanting to say, but perhaps the most glorious teaching of this in all places is the very words of our Savior Himself in John 6, when He said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. 
For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's the promise of God, that once he has gripped us by his grace, he will never let go of us. He will never turn loose of us. At the end of a rich chapter of tremendous gospel truth, in Romans chapter 8, Paul begins by saying that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes into the middle of Romans 8 talking about our being adopted into the family of God and about God sending His Spirit into our hearts, giving us the assurance that we're His sons and we're His daughters. And he reminds us that there's an unbroken chain in salvation, that all that the Father foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And all that He predestined, He called. And all that He called, He justified. And all of those whom He has justified by the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, He has glorified. And in face of all of that, Paul says then, I am persuaded that nothing in this life or in the life to come will ever be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I tell you this evening that it's more about the preservation of God's people than our renewing our grip on Him. He has you by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Little wonder then that the the little epistle packed with truth closes with unbounded praise to God our Father who is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, admittedly, there are serious miscues and serious distortions and errors that grow out of this glorious gospel truth. Preservation does not lead to presumption. It should not lead to the presumption that you and I are exempted from every possible spiritual danger. Preservation does not mean that some who merely profess Christ emptily are without um, without grounds for self-examination, close self-examination. Preservation does not mean that we're always kept from falling into sin, even grievous sin. But it does mean that our Father's determination to save His children is greater than our determination to be saved. It does mean that our Father's determination to save us is greater than all of our sin. It does mean that our Father's unchangeable nature is able to overcome all of our apathy and complacency toward Himself. It does mean that the worth and value of Christ's intercession at the Father's right hand is of infinite value. And the abiding presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Sonship, will subdue sin someday and grant us a glorious resurrected body in the future. We're dependent on our Father's ability to keep us and not we ourselves dependent upon our uh, our ability to keep us. The ability of God to keep us, our Father's ability to hang on to us, is underlined and underscored two ways in the text. First, notice verse 24 says, God is able to keep you from stumbling. The implication here is that God keeps guard over us for 
our spiritual preservation. He keeps guard over us to keep us from stumbling fully and finally into apostasy and error beyond the point of recovery. Uh, keep has the idea of a, of a military term. Uh, I know it's captain, isn't it, Jeff? Captain Jeff Nevels? Captain Jeff Nevels. It's a military term, Jeff. Don't you love the name Jeff? I never met a Jeff I didn't like. I came close once. It wasn't this Jeff, but when I got to know him, I really did like him. Um, Jeff, the term is military in origin. It means that God is a posted watch over us. That our God keeps us carefully watching over us. I love Psalm 121. That the Lord is our keeper. That He neither sleeps nor slumbers. The Lord is our shade at our right hand. That He will keep our going out and our coming in from this time even forevermore. It's not so much the idea that we're keeping ourselves, but that God is keeping us. Wasn't that the prayer of Jesus in John 17, verse 11, when He's just hours, just moments away from the trial that would eventuate in His mockery, in His crucifixion? In John 17, with His eyes and hands lifted toward heaven, He says, Father, I pray that You would keep them. Keep them in Your name. Don't you believe that's a prayer that our Father will answer? That He will keep us in the name of Christ? God not only keeps us from stumbling, but He protects us from our own frailties. Frailties we can't even begin to imagine or know, but He knows them. You remember the boast, the the bragging Peter? Lord Jesus, I'm ready to follow You. Wherever You go, I'll follow You to prison. And then He kind of cinches His belt a notch tighter and says, No, cancel that. I'm ready to follow you to the point of death. And Jesus, looking at Peter, says, Are you really? Well, tonight you will deny me three times. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that when you come back to me, when you return to me, that you will strengthen the brothers. It wasn't Peter who kept himself. It was the intercession of Christ that kept Peter from fully, finally falling away beyond recovery, beyond renewal and repentance. So God is able to keep us from stumbling, yes. But secondly, notice verse 4 says that God's ability is also able to make us stand in His presence, the glory of His presence with incredible or great joy. Presently, you and I stand in grace. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we're standing in this grace. But someday, the text suggests that you and I will stand in the glorious presence of our Father. And we will behold Him. We will see Him in all of His unrivaled glory. This is the terminus, the end point of God's saving action and work on our behalf. That He would bring us into His immediate presence. And not just bring us there, but bring us there in a certain condition. What the text describes here as being blameless. Standing in the presence of the thrice holy God. The one whom seraphim cover their face in Isaiah 6 and sing antiphonally back and forth. Holy, 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 that God. You mean someday you and I, his sons and daughters... We'll be able to stand there without a spot, without a wrinkle, without a blemish, blameless in His presence. 
It's exactly what the text says. Blameless captures the idea of a sinless state that someday you and I will enjoy. In fact, the interesting thing about this word blameless, about the word blameless, the the little Greek word is used uh, elsewhere of Christ, that Christ is blameless. First Peter 1, for example, says that he is the spotless, same word, the spotless Lamb of God. Uh, Hebrews 9 says that Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice without spot, that is, blameless to God. So the same blamelessness of Christ is here applied to you and me in a coming day of glory, that we will stand there that way. But notice this, it will not be because you have worked yourself into a state of blamelessness. It will not be because you have worked your way, prayed your way, read your way, fasted your way, witnessed your way into a state of acceptance before God. You will be blameless before Him because of your Father's power, because of His ability, not only to keep you from stumbling, that is, falling away fully and finally beyond recovery, but able to bring you fully blameless before His presence. This little word presence sometimes is translated in Scripture as in the very center of the eye, in the eye of. I can scarcely take this in that someday I will stand in the presence of the Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer beholding Him right in His very immediate presence. Um, This is what theologians historically have described as the beatific vision. It's the consummate reward of salvation. It's simply to see God. I don't know about crowns. I don't know about just build my mansion next door to Jesus. I don't know about all these imagined rewards that somehow we're going to achieve, and so on. This is awesome in and of itself, isn't it? To stand in the immediate presence of God without shame. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? They tried to hide themselves with fig leaves. They tried to hide themselves in the trees of the garden. They tried to hide themselves beyond self-justification and excuse-making. They could not hide themselves in the presence of God and neither can you. But what we're not able to do, what we could never do in a gazillion years, God is able to do by His awesome and almighty power. He's able to make us stand there welcome, received, beloved sons and daughters in His presence. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, God is going to turn us into bright stainless mirrors that reflect back His character perfectly. What a grand and glorious consummation to all that the Father has intended for us. So this text, verse 24, says that because we are God's beloved people, we can be assured of our preservation in the grace of our Father. And then very quickly in verse 25, because we're God's beloved children, we ascribe all the praise of that, all of the praise of all that God has promised and all that He's accomplished and will accomplish. We ascribe all the praise of that to Him And that's what verse 25 does. And it does so by piling term upon term upon term. Praise, our praise, is expressed in four terms. 
that, that overflow in describing the unassailable character and worth and value of God our Father. Great words filled with a doxological meaning. For example, verse 25 says, Glory be to God, not to God in me, not to God in you. Glory be to God, the radiant shining forth of God's consummate perfection and character. Glory be to this God, the affirmation of His character and His worth. It's the visible public presence of the glorious God, seen in veiled form at Sinai, seen in veiled form at the dedication of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, seen in veiled form in the incarnation of Christ. John said, we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, but not the fullness of glory that's yet to come. Here, standing in the presence of God, our response to that will be to give God all the glory that is His alone. You remember when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. What did Moses, what did God do in response to that request? God hit him in the cleft of the rock and God proceeded to declare to Moses his character. And what was the first aspect of the character of God that he declared to Moses? Long-suffering God, a patient God, who is abounding in grace and mercy, who keeps covenant to a thousand generations, a faithful God who honors His truth and fulfills His word and His promise. And so in our praise to God, in, in the fact that we're His beloved people, we're ascribing all the glory of what it means to be loved by God back to Him, not finding no value in ourselves, but finding all the worth and value in God. Not only is glory given to God, but majesty is ascribed to Him as well. It's only used of God in the Scripture, this term majesty. It's an expression of God's surpassing greatness and power. It depicts the admirable highness and exalted nature of God. He's the only wise God to whom belongs glory and dominion and power both now and forever. He's the one from whom, to whom, and through whom are all things. And when we grow in our understanding of that as His beloved children, we will naturally boast in and brag in and be awestruck in our Father. We ascribe dominion to Him, God's absolute power as sovereign ruler, manifesting in action. A dominion that's His because He's the Creator who spoke the worlds into existence. A dominion that's His by virtue of His providence in which He is sustaining, upholding all things, according to His good pleasure. And then, of course, praising God, we ascribe all the power to God as well. Exousia, the little Greek word elsewhere translated authority, it refers to God's absolute freedom to do as He wills, when He wills, why He wills, how He wills, and according to His will. And so the last three words, listen, the last three words ascribing glory, and majesty, and power unto God, they're all terms of submission. They're all terms of yieldedness. I'm acknowledging God's absolute sway and rule over my life. And I'm doing that because I know that He's a wise and benevolent Father. Because He's my Father and your Father, I'm assured of being preserved in His gracious work. And because of that, then my heart is filled with praise and 
And ultimately, our worship and praise is submission to the Father. There's a great scene of this, a great picture in uh, the first song of heaven in Revelation chapter 4, in which as the four living creatures are worshiping and praising God, and they're again ascribing holiness to God in a superlative form, holy, holy, holy. And uh, the response of all of that is 24 elders, whomever they may be, fall off the thrones upon which they're seated when they cast their crowns before the one who is infinitely and utterly worthy of all of our worship. So this doxology then leads us to submission as children. Father, my life is not mine. You gave it to me. You own it. You redeemed it. You nourish it. You sustain it. And someday you will bring me completely free and unfettered of sin and all of its miseries in your presence. And the time scale of the doxology is immeasurable. All that's offered to God in worship is before all time. Never been a time when he was not worshipped. He's being worshipped now. And he will be worshipped forever and ever and ever. The major cause of praise in this little doxology simply is this. That our Father is also our Savior through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God's saving actions as our Father are accomplished through Christ. When the terrible day of His judgment comes, a day more terrible than you and I could even begin to imagine, when standing there we realize for the first time against whom we've sinned and rebelled, how perfect and right His standards are as a reflection of His character, how serious are the warnings of His judgment, then we will see with unbounded wonder what a mighty work our Father has done to rescue us from sin and all of its condemnation and deserved miseries. And our response in His presence will be glory, majesty, dominion, and power is yours, our Father, both now forever and evermore. The little doxology closes with a short word, Amen. If you're in the South, it's Amen. Simply means it's a transliteration of the Hebrew. It simply means so be it. Jude closes this book saturated with the grace of God from being beloved children to worshiping Him at the end in His presence by simply saying, so be it. That's a fitting end tonight to this doxology in our own lives. Oh, Father, glory to You, majesty to You, power to You, so be it. So be it in my life. So be it through my life as your beloved son and your beloved daughter. So be it. Let's pray. Father, we can scarcely imagine the kind of love that you've poured out upon us. Even John, as an apostle, had first century glimpses of that kind of love in the person of Christ. And he wondered in his epistle, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called His children. I pray that that sense of wonder as your beloved sons and daughters would fill us with a sense of security in an uncertain time. That we would recognize afresh this evening that it's you who is keeping us more than we who are keeping ourselves. May that fill us with awe and wonder and praise.
We lift up our pastor this evening who's not well and pray that you would renew his strength, renew his energy. And in these days of rest and recovery, remind him afresh of the love that you've poured out upon him. And as we finish the week now, may we finish it with a renewed sense of your grace that has abounded toward us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.